Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much. And an especially huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So the most recent members of this exclusive club are Erica H, Paris Lilly, Shauna, Jenny Stensland, Brian Kaneb, Christine Purvis, Alice Lane and Poppy Robinson. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us over on Patreon. Yeah, thank you so much. If you don't currently support the show through Patreon, then you can find us at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we now have the option of an annual membership, which two of you have done in the last week. Um, So special thanks to you guys. We really, really appreciate that commitment to supporting us. And your support through Patreon really does make a huge difference. And it means that we are still here doing what we love so thank you so much thank you so much everybody and when this episode comes out on the wednesday in in the morning on the thursday we'll be drawing our patreon competition for this month and you've just had your patreon bonus episode as well so there's plenty of things for you to be getting involved with over on there so it's mark's turn to tell us case this week so take it away it certainly is yeah This is a case I've wanted to cover for probably since we, well, since before we even established the podcast. It's a case that I knew about from uh, repeats of Crime Watch that I've watched on YouTube. And it's a mystery. So this is an unsolved case. And um, I thought after last week's episode where we looked at, was it the Myazawa family? Mm -hmm. If I pronounced that correctly, yeah. Uh, So we looked at um, a family murder, which was also unsolved. And I think it inspired me to finally cover this case. Um, So this week's case actually takes us back to 1991 and to the village of Denham in Buckinghamshire. Denham is an historic village located approximately 17 miles from central London. Its close proximity to the capital makes it popular with stars of stage and screen. And in 1991, the village was littered with celebrities, including Sir Roger Moore and Cilla Black, but it was also home to the Bell family. Penny Bell, a successful businesswoman, lived with her husband Alistair, an estate agent, and their two children, Matthew, who was 11 in 1991, and Penny's son by her ex-husband, and nine-year-old Lauren, the couple's daughter. The family were affluent, and they lived in a half-million-pound detached house. Penny was a partner in Coverstaff Limited, a successful catering employment agency that she'd co-founded, and the family enjoyed all of the trappings of a middle-class comfortable lifestyle. Foreign holidays, private education for the children, and expensive cars. Penny has been described as outgoing and gregarious. She was happy, and it appears that she had every reason to be. To the outside world, hers was the perfect life. She had a loving husband, a successful career, and two happy, healthy children. But in the summer of 1991, at the age of 43, Penny's life was about to come to an end in a bloody mess. I always hate it when you hear about the background of people before something happens and you just think every single one of these people, every time we talk about somebody, they're just going about their normal, normal, like ordinary life until something happens and it's just so I don't know it just gives me like the chills I think just to kind of imagine I don't know I don't know why it just really shook me I don't I don't like it I do I do get that though because I think 
when we talk about the background of these individuals, of these victims, it brings them to life. So we feel, even though we've only heard a little bit about them, we feel that we know we know them a little bit, I suppose. So knowing that something terrible is then going to happen, um, yeah, I think it just makes it so much harder, doesn't it? June was a particularly cold month in 1991 in the UK, the eighth coldest June on record. It was wet, windy and grey, and the dark clouds appeared to go on forever, giving a sense of impending doom. The month of May had been full of sun, and it seemed as though summer was on its way, but with the heralding of a new month, it just wasn't to be. The 6th of June started out like the previous few days had in Denham. A dull grey sky descended overhead as dawn broke. But, unlike the previous few days, there was a hint of sunshine on this day, despite the unseasonal chilly bite to the air. It was a busy morning in the Bell household that Thursday. Their house was undergoing extensive renovations and was heaving with workmen and builders. The children were fairly self-sufficient at 9 and 11, but it still took a lot of effort to coordinate four people getting ready for work and school, and the builders added to the hustle and bustle of the house that morning. At 8.30am, Alistair left for work. Penny usually waved him off, but she didn't on this morning, possibly because of the disruption caused by the builders. Penny was the one overseeing the renovations. She was the one who fielded the endless questions from the various tradesmen working on the family home, so she could have easily been distracted by them that day. There have been numerous conflicting reports of Penny's mood that morning. One of the builders has been quoted as saying that she was bright and chirpy. However, another said she was a little off with him and that she was acting out of character. Furthermore, Alistair has been quoted as saying in the days leading up to that fateful Thursday that Penny appeared anxious, stressed, withdrawn even. Whatever the case, it was nearly the weekend and after a busy week of commuting into and out of central London, Penny was no doubt looking forward to spending the weekend relaxing at home with her family. When the kids left for school that morning, Penny found herself alone in the house, with just the builders for company. She finished getting ready for work and spent time chatting to an electrician who was working on the kitchen, but she brought the conversation to an abrupt end, saying she had an appointment in just 10 minutes time. Penny left the house at 9.40am before jumping into her powder blue Jaguar XJS and setting off in the direction of her office in Kilburn, a 17 mile journey that would normally take her 40 minutes. But she didn't make it into the office this morning. 50 minutes after leaving home, Penny would lie dead in her car, slumped over the steering wheel, having been stabbed 50 times in a frenzied attack that would leave the interior of her Jaguar drenched in her own blood. What happened in the intervening 50 minutes has been debated over the decades, but in order to get anywhere near to solving this mystery, we must first go back in time further, to the Monday of that week. Before you go back to that Monday, I just want to say how cool her car is. That was a massively cool car in the early 90s. And I read reports that it was a £30,000 car. Wow. And that's like 30 years ago. So the the equivalent now must be like 60, 70 grand. But really cool car. Yeah, if you've not seen one of those old vintage Jaguar XJSs, then uh, definitely uh, Google it because they were definitely a fit car. 
And like you said, this is a case that you'd seen loads of times on Crime Watch and stuff. It's a case that I've definitely heard of. And it is just like the fact that we still like nobody knows what happened in those 50 minutes. That's what's so, so shocking. I know, honestly, it's um, it is baffling. And it's a bit like last week's case. The police have thrown a lot of hours at this, but there have been gaps in the investigation. Um, So it is it is an intriguing case for sure. So it's Monday, the 3rd of June the start of a new week. Penny is stood in the queue at her bank, waiting for the next available cashier. It's busy this morning, but then again, it's always busy on a Monday. Had this been any other time, Penny would have come back later in the week, when it was quieter. But she knows that won't be possible this week. She needs to withdraw a large amount of cash, and she has a very busy week ahead of her. Her diary is crammed with appointments and she needs that money for Thursday. This is the only free time she has to make the withdrawal. As Penny gets closer to the front of the queue, she feels nervous. She knows she shouldn't be doing this. What if the cashier asks her a question about the withdrawal? After all, Penny needs £8,500 in cash. That's not a normal transaction. What's she going to tell her? That it's none of her business? Penny curses herself for not having prepared more. Desperately thinking of a plausible explanation for withdrawing such a large amount of money, Penny suddenly remembers the mess she left behind at home that morning. Of course, she's having building work done to the house. The builders need paying, that's it. That sounds plausible, she thinks to herself. But of course, Penny doesn't need the money to pay the builders. It's required for something much more clandestine. As Penny is called over by the cashier, she fumbles in a bag for her checkbook. She makes a check out to cash and signs it in front of the cashier. Despite Penny's last minute nerves, the teller doesn't question her about the nature of this withdrawal. As the money is dexterously counted out before her, Penny marvels at the speed of the cashier. She's worked hard for this money, but right now it just doesn't feel real. It just looks like bits of colourful paper being banded together in bundles of a thousand. Maybe Penny doesn't want it to feel real. After all, in just a few days' time, this money is going to be handed over to another person. For services rendered. The cashier stuffs the money in a large envelope and Penny takes care to put it in a handbag before she leaves the bank. Holding her bag tighter than usual, she feels a wave of relief wash over her. That's the first task sorted. Now she can get on with the rest of her week and try to forget about her impending meeting on Thursday morning. So let's fast forward now three days to that fateful morning. What follows is based on eyewitness accounts and forensic evidence. Penny has been carrying the £8,500 in cash around in a bag all week. It will be a relief to finally hand it over. As she jumps in a jag that morning, she's temporarily stunned by the radio silence. After a morning of getting herself and the kids ready, amidst the banging and drilling of the builders, the blaring of the television and the chatter of the children, Penny basks in the peace and quiet. I can't get over the fact that she's been carrying that eight and a half grand around in her handbag the whole week. Like, I know it's only a few days, but I get worried even just like, with a bit of cash on me to walk through town to go pay it in or something like that is crazy. Every time you put your handbag down, you'd be nervous. You would, yeah. If you think as well, this was 1991. So yes, eight and a half thousand pounds back then, you're looking at nearly 20 grand now. So this is a huge amount of money that she's withdrawn. 
It's approaching 10am now and Penny is making her way along the A40 towards Kilburn. The sun has come out and the sky is blue. It looks like summer may be arriving after all. 20 minutes into a journey now just 9 miles from her office, Penny pulls off the A40 and onto the A4127, known locally as the Greenford Road. This is not her usual route to work. A little while later, witnesses see a man sat in the passenger seat of Penny's Jaguar and she appears to be in distress now. She's driving erratically along the Greenford Road and a queue of traffic is building up behind her. She's cruising along at just 10 or 15 miles per hour. What's more, she has her hazard lights on and her windscreen wipers are going at full speed, despite it being a lovely sunny day. Fellow drivers beep their horns, but no one really pays any attention to what might be happening inside of the vehicle. As far as they're concerned, this is just an idiot driver who is in their way. A few minutes pass and Penny turns into Gurnall Leisure Centre car park. As she makes her way to a secluded area of the car park, she sees a driver coming towards her in the opposite direction. Both cars are driving slowly, and Penny can clearly see the man's face. She mouths, help me, at the driver, but he disregards what he's just seen and exits the car park. I'm sure we're going to go back to this guy later, I'm sure of it, but in case we don't, He's the, like, bit of this case that has always stuck with me. I just don't understand why he just, like, why did he not take it seriously? I don't think, I don't know if we go back to him specifically, but we do go back to some other eyewitnesses who saw Penny en route to this leisure centre, um, clearly in distress and they didn't do anything. So um, it is called something. It's a psychological behaviour that humans demonstrate. I'm sure this guy as well didn't, go to the police for weeks or something like that as well I I don't know like I just find him so frustrating I think you're right I think this guy out of any of the eyewitnesses didn't didn't come forward for six months which is weird but I'm sure it wasn't him no no not at all not at all it's just weird it is weird but how awful for him that he has to live with that Mm -hmm. knowing that had he done something Um, then Penny's life would be saved. And it reminds me of Debbie Lindsley, the woman who was murdered in in the train carriage, and she could be heard screaming, and people in the the carriage next to her couldn't see, but they could hear what was happening. Well, they were too scared to pull the train thing, weren't they, in case they got a fine? Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's just crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and we've had these debates before a lot. How far would you go if you were in that situation? And I know that, the Debbie Lindsley episode prompted a lot of discussion from our listeners and we had a lot of comments and debates around uh, what we would have done in that situation. And it was pretty much split 50-50, I would say, between those that would have reacted and done something and those that wouldn't. So Penny parks a car in front of a high hedge which surrounds a car park and it also blocks the view of the front of her car. The man sat beside Penny now leans over and stabs her repeatedly with his right hand. Penny fights for her life and receives several defensive stab wounds to her arms. Her beautifully manicured nails have all been ripped off in this desperate struggle for survival. Blood spurts from her wounds and sprays the car's interior. This is such an enclosed space. This is not a large car and the attack is incredibly intimate. The smell of Penny's blood permeates the air, 
and as if high on its scent her attacker leaps out of the car and around to the driver's side where he opens the door before continuing to stab Penny repeatedly. Jesus. He is soaked in Penny's thick blood now and he can feel his clothes cling to his bare skin with the sheer weight of this blood. Initially warm, it's now turning cold as the morning air hits it. Attack over and satisfied that Penny is dead, the man flees. So, just a harrowing end to her life. She was 43 years old, mother of two, loving wife, a very successful businesswoman, which would have been more unusual in the early 90s. So somebody to really admire. She had it all and her life came to such a tragic, bloody end. So before we jump into the aftermath of Penny's savage murder, let's take a breather. Okay, so back to the show. We left Penny slumped over her steering wheel in the car park of a leisure centre, having been stabbed 50 times. That was at 10.30 on the morning of the 6th of June in 1991. Half an hour has now passed and it's 11am. Two women walking towards the entrance of the leisure centre see Penny from a distance slumped over her steering wheel. The morning sunlight bounces off her driver's side window and obscures the view somewhat, so they can't see any blurred or even make out Penny's features. The two women remark to each other that she appears to be asleep and they head into the leisure centre. When they exit an hour or so later, they see Penny still there, still motionless. Instincts kicking in, they go over to the car now and very quickly realise that Penny is in fact dead. The police are called and the area is sealed off. God, you can't imagine, can you, just coming out of Pilates or whatever they were up to and then this suddenly, like, this will stick with you for the rest of your life, God. Yeah, would would have definitely been aerobics in 1991, not Pilates. That is so but, true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really felt for them. They're just two ordinary women Um, probably housewives because it was 1991, um, going home to do the ironing and cleaning and cooking for their husband and kids. Just like the Debbie Lindsley episode, you're going to get a lot of women (laughs) who were were proper career women in the 90s who were going to tell you off like my mum did. My mum was like, you need to tell Mark, I had a job in the 90s, I had a job in the 80s, tell him that was a very old-fashioned view of his. (laughs) Oh God, that's me well and truly told. Mm -hmm. I I take that from your mom. that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm of course joking. Uh, no, I know. Uh, and Penny's a shining example, actually, of of um, having it all in the early nineties. It, it was um, it was the decade, I think, that that defined um, defined that having it all, having oh, the family power. and the career. Yeah, I suppose so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but yeah, I really did feel for those two women. Um, it would have been an absolutely horrific sight that greeted them. I think to just discover uh, a dead body is harrowing as it is, but to discover one. Um, that's obviously the victim has been the subject of a, a violent attack is, is something else. It's something that will haunt you forever. Mm. Penny's daughter, Lauren, remembers waiting at the school gates that day. All of the other children had been picked up apart from her. She remembers running home and seeing her dad at the front door of the family home on his knees. She knew immediately that something had happened to her mum. Alistair explained to his nine-year-old daughter that her mum's car had been found, that someone was in it, and that that person was not very well. He said they didn't know if that person was mum yet, so they had to hope and pray that it wasn't her. 
After a sleepless night, Alistair was taken by the police to identify the person found in the car, and of course it was Penny. Lauren remembers him coming home and seeing this usually towering pillar of strength reduced once again to his knees, telling her that it was her mum. The police investigation into Penny's murder was led by Detective Superintendent Brian Edwards, who made extensive use of the media in appealing for information. Penny's husband Alistair was questioned and of course treated as a potential suspect in the early stages. After all, he'd been the sole beneficiary of his late wife's estate, which had included a £200,000 life insurance policy. You always are going to look at the husband first. I think that's just sensible, isn't it? Yeah, this is textbook. Of course you're going to go there. Um, And yeah, during hours of questioning, Alistair informed detectives that he was bisexual and that he'd been in a relationship with a man for 11 years before he got together with Penny. And although Alistair didn't shout about his sexuality from the rooftops, he hadn't kept it secret from Penny either. On the contrary, Penny was friends with Alistair's ex and knew of the relationship before she'd even got together with Alistair. The man he was in a relationship with was even invited to their wedding. Really shows you what Penny was like as well, doesn't it? Like, yeah. she's just so accepting. Totally. And that's in real stark contrast to the police, um, because this made them really suspicious. And of course, this mm. was 1991. The fact then that this family man had had a gay relationship was frowned on and it was seen as highly suspect, which is... Um, crazy, isn't it, to think how far yeah. we've we've come now as a society that we wouldn't really bat an eyelid, and why should we? And it shouldn't really matter whether Alistair was in an eleven-year relationship with a woman or a man before he'd married Penny, because that relationship had ended some time before those two got together. So, what the fuck difference does it make? Mm, really weird. But then we are thinking of it from our point of yeah. view from now, and yeah, it's. But like you said, it's so crazy to think how far we've come. Yeah. And um, yeah, Alistair was very harshly questioned for a long time, for probably pretty much the maximum they could have questioned him for. So it was, um, I think it was an experience that stayed with him for the rest of his life to this day. Whilst he's still trying to get, like come to terms with and mourn the murder of his wife as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ultimately, however, Alistair was completely eliminated from the police inquiry. In the days after Penny's murder, police were able to quickly rule out a sexual motive. There was no evidence that Penny had been sexually assaulted, and also, although £8,500 was missing, police did rule out robbery as a motive, and they ruled it out because a handbag had been left in the car, and it hadn't been touched. Um, So they said, Yes, the £8,500 is missing. We know that Penny had that with her on that morning and that's gone, but nothing else was taken. Following various appeals for information, a number of witnesses did come forward. A woman who was out walking her dog in Black Park, a 13-acre open space adjacent to Pinewood Studios in nearby Iver, came forward to say she saw a man waiting in a lay-by on former Common Road. A car appearing to match Penny's pulled up and the man got into the passenger seat. He was described as being in his 40s, of medium build, smartly dressed and with dark hair. And that is literally just five minutes from Penny's house. A lorry driver also came forward claiming he saw a blonde woman matching Penny's description in a blue Jaguar just around the corner from Gurnell Leisure Centre shortly before 10.30am that morning. 
He said the car was driving erratically and had its hazard lights on. He recalled overtaking the Jaguar and peering inside as he pulled up level with the car. He said he could see a man in the passenger seat with his hand on the steering wheel. It appeared as though the female driver was attempting to pull over at the side of the road, but the man was grabbing the steering wheel from her and forcing her to continue onwards. Several people came forward to say they remembered seeing Penny's Jaguar in Gurnell Leisure Centre car park, and they all remarked that the windscreen wipers and hazard lights were on. So this does definitely give credence to that lorry driver sighting because he said that the hazards were on and the windscreen wipers. It was a blue Jaguar, a blonde woman in the driver's seat, just round the corner from the Leisure Centre car park around that same time. So that must have been Penny. And what is this guy doing? Like, Why is she trying to pull over? Why is he making her carry on driving? Exactly. At like 10, 15 miles an hour. Like it's really, really like intriguing i just can't work it out and police were able to establish that penny's attack didn't actually begin until she was in the car uh, parked up at gurnell leisure center car park so it's not even like he was actually attacking her and that's why she was driving erratically and trying to pull over but they were obviously having some kind of argument and penny was clearly in distress at that time even though perhaps it wasn't quite violent then um, that would come much later. Um, she was she was still clearly trying to get the attention of fellow motorists yeah, and to definitely. bring the car to a halt to get some help. One witness remembered seeing a man leaving Gunnell Leisure Centre car park on foot at approximately 10.45am. He was dressed smartly and one side of his face seemed to be disfigured. Police worked on a number of hypotheses. When they examined Penny's car, they noted that wallpaper samples were spread across the central console, the area separating the driver's seat from the passenger's seat. Part of the extensive renovations to her home included the complete redecoration of her bedroom. Penny had been showing the wallpaper samples to one of the builders that morning and had then taken them with her to work. The police wondered whether Penny had met someone to show them the samples of wallpaper. And that was genuinely a credible theory. But can you seriously buy that? That Penny picks up a guy, someone she knows, drives to Gurnell Leisure Centre car park, where she's never been before, apparently, where none of the family have ever visited with her. It was a swimming pool. Um, Can you really buy that? That she meets this guy, picks him up, parks up there, and then shows him the wallpaper samples. Um, This isn't what I wanted you to show me. (laughs) This isn't what I was expecting. (laughs) Like, no, it's so bizarre. Like, you wouldn't... I don't understand. If it's something to do with the building work, you'd show them... In situ, you'd show them in the room. It's very, very weird. Yeah, and Penny had a busy diary that week. She was always busy. She earned a lot of money. She ran the company. She's not got time to be picking up a random to just show him some wallpaper samples. It's just bollocks. We will come back to it, the wallpaper samples, in a bit more detail later on, though. So, whatever the case, police were convinced that Penny knew her killer. And interestingly, fingerprints belonging to a family friend, a man named John Richmond, were found in Penny's car. He was questioned before being released without charge, however, but in an interesting twist sometime later, he approached a tabloid newspaper and offered to give an interview detailing the events leading up to Penny's murder in exchange for £80,000. 
He claimed he and Penny were having an affair and had arranged to meet that morning to discuss sleeping together for the first time. He said Penny had been the victim of a contract killer, but his account of all of this was just really confusing and the police ultimately dismissed all of this as fantasy. And in the latter part of the episode, we will come back to this guy and talk about this being a potential theory uh, in, in Penny's murder. So by the following year, 1992, for those that can't do maths, 4,000 people had been questioned and thousands more witness statements had been collected but detectives were no closer to finding Penny's killer. To this day, her murder remains unsolved, and I wanted to spend some time now talking about the theories surrounding this case. This is so interesting, and the way you've kind of like introduced this, it's, I knew the case, but I just feel like now I really know it. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like I know her a bit better and stuff. It's really, really intriguing. I think we've had more of a glimpse into her life and her circumstances. So we know Penny had withdrawn the sum of £8,500 in the days before her murder. And this money was definitely in a handbag on the morning of her murder because her daughter Lauren remembers seeing it there. On the Crime Watch reconstruction I saw, it shows Lauren, Penny and the children's nanny at the breakfast table that morning and Lauren peers inside her mum's handbag and sees an envelope and like the inquisitive nine-year-old child that she would have been, she went to pick it up and her mum said, put that back where it was, That is, there's a lot of money in there. Um, so this is corroborated by Lauren, but also by the children's nanny as well. So that goes to show, though, at least that she wasn't trying to hide that she had that money. Yeah, I that thought that. That feels like to me. Mm. Yeah, and also Lauren has been interviewed much later on as an adult, and she said that actually it wasn't unusual for her mother to withdraw large sums of money. And don't forget, Penny was a businesswoman, so that's quite normal. Don't forget, this is 30 years ago. We dealt with cash a lot more then than we do now. Um, so... Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Um, But, yeah, she wasn't necessarily trying to hide it. And, of course, we'll come on to this in a bit more detail shortly. So we have to ask, with this money having disappeared uh, in a bloody carnage that, that it was, was Penny being blackmailed over something? Her husband was bisexual, certainly not something to be ashamed of now. But, as we said back then, it could have been seen as embarrassing. Was a figure from the past threatening to expose this quote-unquote dark secret? I feel like if that was the case, though, she'd probably go to Alistair, not knowing them very well, but I imagine that she would have gone to him and he would have known something about it. Yeah, I I think I, well, I totally Mm. agree. Why would she not tell him? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have to ask also, did Penny have other skeletons in her closet that someone was threatening to expose? That, that could have been the case. Another possible theory is that Alistair was having an affair and refusing to leave his wife. Did Alistair's lover kill Penny? Of course, we have to look at whether Penny was having an affair as well. John Richmond, the family friend whose prints were found inside Penny's car, claimed they were, after all. Not a lot is known about this guy, but we do know that the police eliminated him from their inquiries fairly quickly which makes me think they must have been confident that he had nothing to do with Penny's murder. But I don't know. 
What I will say here is in the interviews I've seen where Lauren has spoken about her mother's death and who could be responsible, she's very non-committal, which of course is understandable. But she does say towards the end of one interview that I watched that she believes definitely her mother knew her killer and that also Lauren says, I think I have an inkling of who it is, but I don't know, so I can't say, which is really interesting. So. I know. So does she suspect that it was this guy, John Richmond? Because she would have known him as a family friend, as a young girl, and then to carry on growing up without her mum around, but potentially this strong guy still in the family's life, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And I definitely agree with, with you and with her. Like, this does feel like she definitely would have known him to be in the car with him and that sort of thing anyway but also it it does just feel very intimate like she's pulled over and parked up yeah I don't know it just feels like she knew him to me I agree I think Penny definitely knew her killer I think she knew him intimately I'm not saying that they were in a sexual relationship but I think it might have been a, a relatively intimate relationship and I think the nature of her murder backs this up she was stabbed 50 times in a very confined space And although there was no evidence of sexual assault, there is perhaps a sexual element to the way in which Penny was killed with the stabbings, because there is a link really, isn't there, between Mm -hmm. that and penetration. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that it was Penny who was sighted by the dog walker in Black Park, picking up that smartly dressed man. I'm convinced he is the man that killed Penny. Who he is and why he did it is the tricky part. I think Penny could have been having an affair with him, maybe that affair had ended and he was threatening to blow her family life apart by revealing all to her husband unless she paid him off. The money Penny withdrew from a bank was withdrawn from a joint account she held with her husband. So some people have said if Penny was acting in secret, why would she have withdrawn this money from a joint account? But I don't buy that. Penny was a successful businesswoman. She was probably the one in charge of the household finances, so although this was a joint account, I think it may have just been a joint account in only name. I doubt Alistair, her husband, had anything to do with it. I do struggle with the amount though. £8,500 is such a specific amount. Why not £8,000 or why not go the whole hog if you're blackmailing someone and ask for £10,000? After all, Penny would have been good for the money. Regardless of the amount, I do think that Penny was being blackmailed and the only plausible explanation for me is that this guy was threatening to tell her husband something that she didn't want him to tell. Yeah, do you know what? I've got to agree with you. I think it's some sort of blackmail. It just doesn't feel like it would be to do with business because she's successful. I doubt that she'd have to do anything behind the scenes. And... I just, yeah, it just sits weirdly with me that she would take the money out and then carry it around with her with all these plans to go and meet this person. It's just the fact that she's not keeping it secretive seems a bit odd to me because at any point someone might question what the money's for. But then she might just have a good answer because, like you said, it wasn't unusual for her to have that money in cash. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a difficult one to try and un- like untangle. Yeah, and yes, yeah, I do I do understand. She kept the money close by because it was in a handbag. Um, and maybe she just thought that, yeah, maybe her daughter caught a glimpse of it and the nanny as well. But why would they ever then tell anybody that they'd seen a big pile of money in an envelope in her handbag? 
she maybe just thought, well, they're, they're not going to say anything. But also, don't forget, it was in an envelope, so you wouldn't have known how much it was. And like you say, she was used to um, withdrawing cash. People were used to that. So, um, so I don't know. So despite the theory that Penny could have been having an affair, Lauren, her daughter, does refute this. She says that her mother's every move was accounted for. Penny had diaries which documented every single meeting, which could be then corroborated, and she worked in a busy office. There was no stories of her going missing regularly during the working day. There were no credit card statements showing hotel bookings for meetings with this man. So I don't know. It does sound like she was incredibly busy and just wouldn't have had the time for an affair. But I guess if you want to make it happen, you find a way of making it happen. So, as I said, Lauren has hypothesised that her mother's murderer was someone she knew, um, someone who loved her, but Lauren has said that she thinks it could have been unrequited love. Um, So, somebody that was maybe obsessed with her mum, but her mum didn't uh, reciprocate those feelings, which I think, potentially, that's plausible, but why would she meet him? Why would she take that money with her to probably hand over to him? Unless it was a one night, like one time thing that something had happened and he's there saying, look, I want to be with you. And she says, absolutely not. It was a mistake. I'll pay you to stay quiet. And then he goes to this meeting thinking, do you know what? I'm going to try and ask her again. Like, please, let's be together. She says, nope, you're going to take my money and you're going to go and you're never going to speak to us again. And then he just sees red and stabs her 50 times, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That kind of fits for me. It feels spur of the moment that enough, but he must have taken a weapon with him, so he must have felt some sort of premeditation. I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'd not thought of that. And this was allegedly a smartly dressed guy. He was wearing smart trousers, a shirt and a tie. Some said he was wearing a blazer as well. So, yeah, it's um, it does jar that, that he would have taken a knife with him. So... I just it's a real head fuck this one and I've read I've read some blogs and associated comments on Penny's murder and one individual has even suggested that Penny may have been meeting a hitman and that that is what the money was going to be used for so was she planning to have a husband killed or someone else and maybe that's a bit far-fetched but I suppose we have to look at every possibility here a more credible theory is that it was Robert Knapper he was a serial killer active at this time and I feel like we've tried to pin quite a few unsolved murders on him but as I said he was active at this time in the area and police did in fact question him about Penny's murder but they ruled him out as a suspect and I would buy it being him but his murders were much more random um, so I don't know he killed Rachel Nickell, uh on Wimbledon Common He's he was also charged with other murders as well and there, there were a similar number of stab wounds inflicted on the victim it was a frenzied attack but they were strangers to him and I think Penny really did know this guy she knew her murderer yeah and I think it would have definitely come up if she'd have known Robert Knapper as well so and why would she he was he was a bit of a loser and Penny was Mm. super successful there's no way that their paths would have legitimately crossed no I think it's um you have to mention him but I don't think it really has any real link to it no personally because we did potentially put him out there didn't we for debbie lindsley 
as well because that was a similar murder but that was a stranger murder this wasn't so i think we definitely have to rule him out of this even though it fits his mo uh it wasn't him this is a case that definitely has more questions than answers and i think sometimes the more you deliberately analyze something the further you move away from the most likely explanation I think there are a lot of red herrings too. For example, as I said earlier, in the days leading up to her death, Penny had been incredibly agitated, stressed even. And yes, this could have been because she knew she was paying a blackmailer off on the Thursday morning, but it could have been a particularly shitty week for her. She had a demanding job and home life, she had builders in and that's stressful on its own. And I read reports that she and Alistair were having £100,000 worth of renovations done to the house. So this would have been a huge undertaking. That is a massive project. Is and also you might just have like twinged your neck getting out of bed funny and then you're in pain. Like you can be a bit agitated or looking stressed and then like one of the builders thinks that she was fine, one of them thinks she's a bit off. You you might just there could be a million reasons for that. Yeah, and I think I think generally someone's mood will fluctuate in a short period of time so it's probably quite normal that there are these conflicting reports particularly on the morning of her murder that she's chirpy and bright but then that she's short and blunt and snappy that's just that's just me between the hours of 7am and 8am that's normal (laughs) um on this note however of the building works being done on the home I don't know why, but I do feel there could be a connection between the builders and the money and Penny's death. For me, it's a bit of a coincidence that all of these men were suddenly in her house, men she wouldn't have known before, and then weeks later she's dead. And there were like 20 builders working on the house, so there were lots of people that she'd not previously come into contact with, but had then quite quickly I suppose built a close relationship with was she withdrawing the money to give to one of the builders maybe not for works being carried out on the house maybe it was a loan maybe she had been fed a story and wanted to help and was then murdered so the money didn't have to be repaid I don't know again it's probably a bit far-fetched but I do have a question mark over these builders and we know for a fact that that money that she withdrew was not to pay the builders with. Maybe this kind of could fit in with my theory as well like potentially something happened between her and one of the builders and he's like then the reason she's a bit snappy with one person is because he stood next to the guy that she's yeah but I don't know but he wouldn't be really well dressed if he was already at her house being a builder I don't know but potentially this could have been the person that that could have been the reason why she then needed to pay someone off to be like keep quiet yeah yeah it's plausible as are a million other theories I think and why was the wallpaper found on that central console So, as I said, the police did think that perhaps Penny had met with somebody to discuss the wallpaper samples and get their opinion, Um, but they did eventually believe that Penny's killer may have laid the wallpaper samples there on that central console to give that impression um, that this was a planned meeting between Penny and some kind of fucking wallpaper specialist. Um, 
But again, it's still not plausible that the killer would have done that uh, to throw them off the scent. It's just bollocks. But equally, this wallpaper was neatly laid out on that central console between the front passenger seat and the driver's side. And it was still laid out there. I just don't understand that. And that, if that is the killer laying it there to make it look like that, that's someone who knows what's going on in her private life that she's having her house redone. That's I mean, very not true. Not that it's necessarily a private secret, but for example, I wouldn't really know if my post lady was having her house redecorated, but I might know if you were. So so it could be maybe that this person is a little bit closer to her than, and that does fit in with the fact that she was in the car with him. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just, you just can't make sense of it. And most intriguingly of all, how did the killer get away? Did he have a car in the car park? He must have been absolutely covered in blood as well. Exactly. He would have been covered in blood. And don't forget, we have that sighting of a smartly dressed man leaving the car park on foot very shortly after police believe Penny would have been murdered. So was that him? Because we also have the sighting of the smartly dressed man who was most likely, let's be honest, getting into Penny's car earlier that morning. So was that him? And I did wonder, because the witness had said he seemed to be disfigured on on one side of his face, was that actually blood obscuring part of his features? And the witness couldn't almost take it in, and and that's just how it manifested in terms of her explaining it inside her own head. Uh, Again, far-fetched. Um, I don't think the killer would have got away on foot because you are right, Bethan. He would have been absolutely drenched in Penny's blood. There's no way that he could have got away on foot. So he must have had a car parked up in that car park, probably very close to Penny's car because it seemed as though he was directing her and telling her where to drive and then most likely where to park. So it probably was very close by but again if this guy had got into the car at black park which is about 20 miles away into penny's car at that wood um why would he already have a car parked up maybe he just planned it all i suppose and had parked that the night before that's plausible yeah i just don't know and you're taking a big big risk because not only does he stab her inside the car but he then gets out of the car goes round to the other side stabs her some more and then potentially either flees on foot or gets into a car there are so many opportunities for someone to see you either in the middle of stabbing her or in the the minutes and seconds afterwards so whilst it feels planned in the fact that he had the knife with him and that sort of thing it's also not very planned because that's really risky it's so risky the police said he was either incredibly lucky or had planned this meticulously and i have read other theories on reddit whereby somebody said maybe a van with a side door uh belonging to the killer had been pulled up or had been parked in that car park and then the killer had directed Penny to park next to it so maybe he could almost get into the van in the side door and stab her um, through the window or something like that um, so that he was hidden I don't know and when we when we're looking at this potentially being a builder what do builders drive yeah so I, I I really don't know. Obviously, there was no CCTV back then, um, or certainly not 
not as much as there is now. So there was no footage of, of any of this happening. But this was a busy time. This was a Thursday uh, mid-morning. Lots of people would have been going into that leisure centre. And um, yeah, it was a huge risk. Although it was a relatively secluded area of the car park, shielded by a hedge, what was to stop somebody else pulling up beside Penny at that time, before, after, during absolutely nothing so so again it's one of those things that doesn't make sense but yes the killer must have had his car parked in that car park um yeah in an interview lauren gave to vice magazine she said i have no memories of my mother whatsoever finding out what had happened at nine i wasn't able to cope cognitively with a trauma of that size It's heartbreaking. The process of grieving involves revisiting memories. And when I was growing up, I'd feel sad, but I just had no memories to draw upon. I've got a photo. I know that's my mom, but I can't remember anything about her. Anything. And she added, from the moment my mother died, everything died. I don't have a relationship with my father anymore. I do have a relationship with my brother, but his memory of my mother is as tarnished as mine. All of our family friends dispersed. People think that when something happens like what happened to my mum, it brings a family together. That we're all doing candlelit vigils and there's so much love. It wasn't like that for us. When Lauren was 19, her father Alistair told her he couldn't do love anymore and asked her to move out of the family home. Her brother had left some years prior for boarding school. This absolutely broke him. No. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. She she said of this, I feel more scarred about the breakdown of my relationship with my father than I do my mum. My mum didn't have a choice of not being here. But when your only parent left, the person who is supposed to love you unconditionally turns around and tells you they don't want you anymore. It wounded me beyond belief. And I wish it had been that kind. He was acidic in the way he did it. He told me he wished he'd never met my mother because then he wouldn't be in this situation. I feel convinced my life is better off for it now, but it was devastating at the time. I mean, God, isn't that awful? Wow. Oh my gosh. It just ripped this family apart. Lauren reports that her father is now a recluse. He doesn't see or speak to anyone and he still lives in the family home, although Lauren says, not that you'd know, it's like a rainforest there now. So it's obviously very unkept and it just it makes me really it makes me so sad for Lauren because when you if you watch any of her interviews she is so eloquent and i think her job is like head of customer services for something so she's gone on and had this amazing career and she's had a lot of counseling and worked through this and come out the other side this amazing woman that penny would have been so proud of but the fact that her dad just could not move forward is just tragic because it just ruined that relationship. So Lauren concludes by saying, I know other people who've lost parents at a pivotal age who've turned to drink and drugs, but thanks to a lot of therapy, I actually feel lucky that I've come out of this relatively unscathed. I made the decision to live. The one thing I know about my mother is that she loved life, so I try to live my life by that way of thinking. And I thought this was so beautiful note to end on, actually. Lauren went on to have a child whom she named Penny after her mother, which was just 
so sweet. I love that. That's so, so nice. And what a wonderful memory for her. And what an amazing way to kind of, like she said, not go down the very typical and understandable, but unfortunately, real, real path that can just ruin your life. She's actually gone, do you know what? No, my mum loved life. I need to make sure I live with, for this. And the difference between her and Alistair and the way that they took this and how they kind of came out the other side. Well, he hasn't, it doesn't feel like. No. And I do wonder if in those very early days after Penny's murder, Alistair being questioned so harshly by the police about his past, which was completely irrelevant, I do wonder if that really just fucked things up, basically. He didn't have that initial those initial days to really start to process what had happened so maybe that came much later i don't know um but but honestly lauren is um she is a real resilient woman and she's absolutely amazing you must look at some of the interviews that she's given because she has done everything in her power to keep her mother's name out there and to appeal for information and so sadly nearly 30 years later now um, this is still unsolved but I do think it was so interesting that Lauren said in um, I think it was a Donald McIntyre documentary which she'd absolutely collaborated with, that she said um, she wouldn't be pushed, she wouldn't allow herself to be pushed on on what happened, and she made that clear. But she did say, I I do think my mum knew her killer. I think it was an unrequited love, um, that her mother didn't love this person in the same way that they loved her, and that she has an idea of who it could be, but it's just an idea, and therefore she won't, she can't discuss that any further, so... Um, yeah, just just so incredibly sad for her. But what an inspiration that she came out of it the other side and lives each day as her mum lived her life in her first 43 years. What a beautiful way to finish the, the episode there, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, I think it is in, in Penny's memory. So um, we hope you found that case interesting and we would love you guys really this time. I know we say it quite often, but please do get in touch with us in all of the usual ways to let us know what you think may have happened. Who do you think might have been responsible? Um, Who knows? Maybe somebody listening to this um, knows something or maybe the person that killed Penny will listen to this because I know that people have Google alerts set up on names that are involved in cases that they were involved in. Um, we know that happens and usually it's victims and, and people that are in the periphery. But why wouldn't murderers do that too? So maybe the murderers are listen- listening and yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is an opportunity to bring closure to the family. So on that note, uh, find us in all, all the usual places. We're on Patreon, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're also on YouTube. I think we've got nearly 500 subscribers now, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's definitely growing that, that community. It's wonderful. It is, yeah. I love seeing um, notifications saying people keep subscribing. So it's a different way of us um, uh, reaching people that wouldn't ordinarily listen to a podcast. But you do, Bethan kind of handles it all and you do accompany the um, audio with lots of different photos, don't you? So it's an yes. interesting way of... Uh, a bit of different. Li- yeah, of listening to and, and seeing those involved. So, so do find us on there. But until next time, we will uh, we will see you next Wednesday, guys. Thank you for joining us. Bye.